I worked in, you know, restaurants through high school, through college, and I wanted to own my own chain of restaurants. So when I got out of school, I really wanted to work for Marriott because they had the best training programs at the time. And so I, I, I lobbied. I, I, I didn't get a job initially, and I went back multiple times to be specific, 12. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, I always like to highlight the road less traveled. So we're looking today at the unlikely path one woman took to running one of the most popular fitness and lifestyle brands in the country. Equinox CEO Nikki Leandakis grew up in Western Massachusetts, dreaming of eventually owning her own restaurant chain. She worked in her family's diner and early on as a fry cook at Hardee's before spending many years post-college running and managing hotels. But she got a call recently out of the blue and it set her on a completely different path. Here she is to tell you her story. Nikki Leandakis, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. You are now a little over a year into the job as CEO of Equinox. Tell us about the job, why you came. Your background was in the world of hospitality. My entire career has been in hospitality. When the opportunity to join Equinox came about, I I really just looked at the fact that, you know, what we do at Equinox is so closely aligned with my personal mission and my ultimate purpose, which I've become more and more clear on as I've, you know, taken on leadership roles over the years that what really gives me joy and satisfaction is making a difference in people's lives and helping people just optimize their potential, become their best self. And that's exactly what we do at Equinox. We help people maximize their highest potential. Something you mentioned that that really strikes me is you, you said you, you work to find your personal mission. How did you get there? What were the steps you took to really know this is what I genuinely want to be doing? I, I really honestly just learned through a lot of self-reflection. I took advantage of tools. I, you know, whether it was counseling, executive coaching, um, you know, reading, I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek's, mm. um, and uh, even, you know, um, going through workshops. But I, I, over time, continuously came up with very similar answers. And I really, I really just started to hone in on what gave me joy and what I was best at. They were very aligned. How much of that do you think is a passive experience versus a very specific focus? It sounds like a lot of these things you did were very specific. Very intentional, very specific as part of overall commitment to learning about myself. I I truly believe that as a leader, the most important work you can do is to learn about yourself. Your impact on so many people is really going to define your success or not. And to understand the patterns of your personality, where your gifts are, where your challenges are, how you impact others and, and how to leverage your gifts. 
um, that self-discovery is what led me down the path of understanding what my ultimate mission in life is. So you grew up not far from here in Massachusetts. Did you know as a kid what you wanted to do? Did you have a sense that it was going to be business? No, (laughs) I did not. I really didn't. I was um, one of five children and... um, my mother early on identified that I had talent for art and um, she came from a long line of artists. And, you know, when you're one of five, anything that helps you stand out, you know, anything that makes you special from the others, I grabbed onto that. And I went to school initially thinking, you know, I, I was an art major and going to, you know, pursue a career in art. And I was working in restaurants to pay my way through college and, decided that I wasn't as talented as my mother thought I was. I saw the other <laughs> art students who were supremely talented. I was very average and decided that I just loved working in restaurants. It was so much fun. And the the interactions with all different kinds of people I found really exhilarating and interesting. So I changed my major to hotel and restaurant management. So did you ever do anything in art after that point? Um, as a hobby. As a I've hobby. I've continued um, over the years to take classes c- through continuing ed programs, and I, I'm always doing something artistic on the side. It's a passion of mine. I just didn't feel like I was strong enough to make a living and definitely didn't vision myself as a starving artist ever. Just wasn't up for it. Send us a picture, and I'll post it on Instagram at the end of the episode because <laughs> I want to see your work. And you okay. can send us your Mona Lisa. It'll be great. <laughs> Um, okay, so you're on this path. You decide hotel management, or you're you're interested more in the business space. How do you get into the industry initially? Into the hospitality industry? Yeah. yeah you know, the wonderful thing about hospitality is it's full of opportunity, and the barriers to entry aren't very high, um, either as an employee or as an owner, um, particularly in the restaurant world. You know, so so um, you know, there's not necessarily when looking for work in the hospitality industry, a requirement that you have an educational background specific to that. It could be a business degree. It could be, you know, any kind of degree. I think what's really more important is that you have um, a genuine heart for um, taking care of others, looking after others, for um interacting with people in a way that has a positive impact Mm -hmm. on them, either as a leader or as, you know, guests and as a leader that you really appreciate the importance of the people. These are people driven businesses, much like Equinox. It's all about the people. We're nothing without our people. So you have to have the aptitude and the desire and and love influencing people. Yeah, it's it reminds me actually of Danny Meyer, who I'm yeah. sure you know. Yeah, um, the Big head fan. of Union Square Hospitality. He's the creator of Shake Shack, and it's all about the people and customer service and delivering on that message over and over and over again every single day. So you find your way into the industry. Did you do a lot of internships, or was it? I mean, you mentioned that you were working in the in the restaurant industry already. So this was was this on the floor? Were you managing? Um, I. You know, I, my grandparents owned a diner in Western okay. Massachusetts, so I grew up in the diner, hanging out in the diner. My first paying job was I was a fry cook at a Hardee's when I was 15. What's the secret to perfect fries? Um, well, I would say not using the same fry grease for those <laughs> and the apple pies and the fish squares, oh, but dear. that's a separate conversation. Um, <laughs> um, perfect fries, fried twice. Um, anyway... Um, you know, I I, t- I worked in 
you know, restaurants through high school, through college. And I wanted to own my own chain of restaurants. So when I got out of school, I really wanted to work for Marriott because they had the best training programs at the time. And so I, I, I lobbied. I, I, I didn't get a job initially and I went back multiple times to be specific, 12. And wow. And yeah, I actually did call Bill Marriott in, in his headquarters office repeatedly and said, you know, I really want a job. I didn't get it in the college interviews. You know, how can I come to work for you? I want to understand why I didn't get a job. And finally, someone from his office called me back and I did get a job as a management trainee in food and beverage. So that kind of launched my career. I have so much respect for that. So, okay, so you applied for what kind of job were you applying for that you initially Um, got turned down from? A management training job. A management training job. And you called 12 times. Were you leaving voice messages? Um, leaving messages no, with assistants? There, I was leaving messages with an assistant. At the time, there wasn't such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was leaving messages with an administrative assistant. And what were you saying in your messages? I interviewed. I'm a college student. I'm a senior in college. I interviewed um, for this job. And I didn't get it. And I can't get feedback on why I want to understand why I didn't get the job. And I really want to work for Marriott. I love that. I mean, everybody has been turned down for jobs. And one of the most frustrating things when you're turned down, no information. It's just like, sorry, there was another candidate or whatever. And then you're you're like, well, what did what can I either do differently for the next interview that I go to? Or if that's your dream job, and it sounds like this was, mm-hmm. how do I make it work? Yeah. Well, how do I change your mind? Yep. Did they ever tell you, here's what you could do differently? Or was it just that after hustling over and over again, they finally said, okay, enough with the calls. We're letting you in. You know, I got a call back from someone in human resources and they said, you know, what is it you're after? And I and then I just jumped to, I want to work for you. You know, mm-hmm. I want to work for mm-hmm. Marriott. I want to learn. You have the best training programs and I want to learn learn. And I got a job offer. Fantastic. I love that story. So you're working for Marriott. How many years did you spend before you started looking outside of the company? Um, I worked for Marriott for three years. Yeah. And I worked in the beverage area. I ran a nightclub in Nashville, Tennessee. (laughs) (laughs) What does that entail? So are you just like making sure that there's enough uh, alcohol and beer for the night? It was very popular. It was high, high volume. Um, one of the most successful, you know, clubs in the company. And yeah, making sure all the bars were stocked, making sure, you know, all the bartenders were doing what they were supposed to in the cocktail waitresses, making, you know, moving. We had lines to get in. We had a a disc jockey and ultimately a video jockey and just making sure that all the people who were drinking a lot were behaving. Yeah. (laughs) So you were an enforcer of sorts. Yeah, I was. 21 years old, big set of keys (laughs) and marching around, making sure people were doing what they were supposed to and stopping people from doing what they weren't supposed to be doing. Uh, I bet there were some interesting stories on that job. So it was a lot. So you you were working a lot nights, too. Yes, I did. Yeah, I was I would go in at like three in the afternoon and work till three or four in the morning. By the time we closed the bar down and counted all the cash and did all the close up work, I often was going home at sunrise. That's got to be a hard schedule. Is that part of what made you think I should find another opportunity? No, um, I didn't mind it. I was young. I mean, I was like in my early 20s. So I, I, I it was a fun job. I loved it. Um, I actually moved to Atlanta. I fell in love with a guy and followed him. <laughs> Is this your husband now? No. Okay. All right, then. But you did. So you followed him to Atlanta and 
what happened from there? Um, I started interviewing. I had a good mentor at Marriott who said to me, you belong in a company called Ritz-Carlton. You would be a great fit. And I didn't quite understand that because I didn't know the company, but I moved to Atlanta and that's where Ritz-Carlton was headquartered at the time. And I went on a job interview and I got the job. So I started working for Ritz-Carlton where I learned a lot about service. I learned a lot about um, fine dining. I learned about food. I learned about wine. I was there eight years. It was a great experience. I became the first woman to become a food and beverage director in the company. I was very proud of that. Um, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Did you ever feel like an outsider or what? How did that play out? Um, yeah, I did. There were I, there weren't women in food and beverage at the time in leadership. There just weren't. It was all male, and uh, I did feel like an outsider. Um, but I I I just didn't focus on that. I believed that if I focused too much on, you know, worrying about being different from a gender standpoint, if I made it an issue, other people would make it an issue. If I didn't make it an issue, other people wouldn't make it an issue. Mm-hmm. That was my firm belief. So I kind of just put blinders on and thought of myself as a business person um, interacting with other business people. And if people had an issue with my gender, I just tried to think about it as their issue, not mine. Mm-hmm. So you're moving up the ladder. The Equinox job, how did that even come to be? More No Limits after this quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring. Where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions. Then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter, I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I'm here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and start here. So you're moving up the ladder. The Equinox job, how did that even come to be? Um, I got a phone call, really, honestly, asking if I was interested. And From a headhunter or something yeah, like that? Yeah. yeah. And, and um, it wasn't like something I was thinking about, but the the brand was one that I have held in high regard and have in my past, you know, roles used as an example of a brand that really understands very clearly who they are and what they stand for and are bold and um, unafraid to put a stake in the ground and say, this is who we are, this is what we believe, and not worry about having a polarizing view, um, as the well-known ad campaigns can be at times polarizing. I really respected that courage that um, the people behind Equinox had from a marketing, from a branding standpoint, and then the excellence in operations as someone who grew up in operations and, you know, having worked in luxury, um, you know, hospitality, I really respected the way Equinox approached the clubs. Nobody else, nobody else operated at that level of quality. So it was a brand I pointed to my team often and said, these guys, you know, they get it right. So when I got that call, I was like, oh, well, I wasn't thinking about this, but 
I'm going to pay attention. This is Equinox. Yeah, for those who haven't seen the sort of ad campaign that I think you're referencing, which is in the storefront of every single Equinox, it's basically the most beautiful people in the world glistening with sweat and wearing as little clothing, sometimes none, um, <laughs> as humanly possible. Yeah, there are... Um there are some very um, provocative and very bold images. Um, they're they're all reflective of someone or people who believe in something so firmly and are so committed to what they believe in. They will go to you know any lengths to um, to deliver on that commitment. So. When you get the call, are you automatically on board or were, was there any hesitation? You were on the West Coast at the time. Yeah, I was I was absolutely intrigued. You know, um, I didn't know what to think because I hadn't been considering a left turn in my career out of hospitality into, you know, what we do, fitness and um, and healthy or high performance living, as we call it. But it was so intriguing. The more I talked to people behind the brand, the more I talked to the executive team, the more interested I became. So you're interested. You also are somebody who you you do work out. I mean, I could tell you work out because your arms are totally jacked. I would feel like there might be some pressure. And we've had the women from Soul Cycle here. We've had um, the women from Flywheel here. And I always ask if there if it feels like you got to be like a workoutaholic in these jobs. Uh, you know, I have ha- I have um, committed to fitness and healthy living my whole life. It's just a huge part of my way of being. And I learned and and firmly believe that the connection between your physical health and well being. And the ability to maximize your energy and direct it to your highest purpose or your most important mission of the day um, is a skill. And and that to be our best, it starts with the physical. That's an entry point. You know, then it goes to mental, emotional, spiritual, you know, well-being. But physical wellness and excellence and being your best self are directly connected. That's a passion of mine. And I've brought it to the companies that I've led as part of the leadership um, philosophy that you have to take care of yourself. You have to be healthy and you have to move every day Mm -hmm. um, to maximize your energy. What do you think has driven that shift? Because it seems like there's a great shift away from sort of the work out to look good versus let's be healthy as human beings. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with you. It's 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 less about work out to look good. Although some people that is absolutely sure. like it. I got to wear a bathing suit and I'm going to the beach in a couple of months and I'm going to look good. Damn it. Or, or you know, yeah, but I remember the buns of steel videos I yes. used to use. And um, that was like a high school thing for me. And it was pretty much all of that. Like, OK, girls, you still have to get in your bikini. And now, you know, you go to a class and that's not really the the terminology that's getting used. No, I think, I think that might feel, I mean, I think it's still a motivator for some and that's fine. That's okay too. You know, we all want to look good, but I think feeling your best is really what it's all about and maximizing your energy and having a, a healthy life equals a high performance life. I think people get that today. At some level, they get that and they want to feel their best, but it does span generations. It goes from, you know, millennials to boomers and seniors. Mm-hmm. And also I think 
think working out has become a social currency. People talk about where they work out. It's a badge of honor if they work out at a cool place and it's the new spot. Um, and, and, and it's a social experience for many. People are going to work out in yeah. groups. Um, I do. I work out with my friends and I look forward to it for the very first time in my life. I didn't realize you could look forward to, for me, to exercise. And the reason that I started to is because I found girlfriends that I go regularly with. If we remade Sex in the City today, yeah. <laughs> instead of going to brunch, they'd be going to Equinox. <laughs> so true. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to the idea of being the new person coming to a new job. Uh, Since you joined Equinox not that long ago as CEO, what did you do and how do you handle that coming into a new organization? Are there any things that you always keep in the back of your mind and behaviors that you use? Yes. Um, One of the things that I did was uh, a listening tour for months. I just, you know, really fought the urge to dispense advice and tell people what they should be doing and just listen and learn. That's hard to do, especially when you've, you know, you feel like you've done a lot and accomplished a lot and have ideas of your own. It's it's really challenging. But I just tried to listen as much as possible and take in as much as I could and learn as much as I could about a company that's been successful for 26 years. Um, I just had to accept that I had a lot to learn and it wasn't my job to tell them what they needed to know from me until I understood the history and the why things were the way they are the way they are and and what the opportunity is. And I think for anyone, no matter what the level, whether you're coming in as an executive or starting at the beginning of your career, that sort of idea of a listening career, getting to know a lot of different people early on in a job is such a smart thing to do. It's a little scary probably for people to go out and, and knock on doors and send emails. Can I have lunch, coffee, whatever it is. But I think that serves you no matter where you are in your career invaluably. I think so. I think, you know, a lot of times we feel that we have to show up knowing, show up as though we know everything and we have all the answers and the ability to be humble and just say, I don't know and I don't need to try to know. What's the biggest challenge of the job? I just want more time. I wish there were I wish there were 35 hours in every day. Every day I have so many things I want to do. And no matter how hard I try to fit more in. I just, I struggle with not having enough time. I know the feeling. And how do you prioritize it? How do you decide what needs to be taken care of versus what can wait? Um, That has become a skill that I've, you know, really worked on over the years. If you're reactive to everything coming your way, it'll just eat up all of your time. And while it might feel good to either be a firefighter or the first responder to every email that comes your way, it's not always the best use of your time. So to be very intentional about my time and to schedule with clarity what my highest priorities are, I look at my schedule on a week-to-week basis, I look at it on a monthly basis, and I look at it on a daily basis, and I'm often adjusting because if I made a decision to take a meeting or to do something that on on second look, it's not lined up with my highest priorities, I will back up and reshift mm-hmm. and say, you know what, let's move that to a month out because I have more important things to work on right now. Um, so for me, it's been... It's been a learning over years of just the the discipline to think intentionally about how I'm spending my time 
and to be okay with rescheduling so that your highest yes. priorities get addressed every day. And I would say the biggest learning has been that scheduling the appointments with myself are the most important appointments I can schedule the the time to take care of myself, the time to sleep enough, the time to work out every day, the time to um, get away and reflect, the time to plan, um, and or you know that quiet time. Those are critical to to being successful. If you're running 100 miles an hour seven days a week, you can't be strategic. You can't be thoughtful. Burnout. And you end up very reactive. Yeah. Do you schedule those things on your calendar? So if we looked at your calendar, it would be a very blocked out day. You would see my workouts. My workouts are scheduled a month out. Every month I, I schedule them one month at a time. Um, your work. So and you're not doing the same workout every day. Mm-mm. So you've got a different workout on the calendar every day. And you do it mostly in the mornings. Yeah. Yeah. And so, some at night. OK, because um, you are sometimes a two workout a day person. I read. Yes, that happens sometimes. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I strength train. I try to get in cardio and um, I'm um, addicted to yoga. So I, I really um, some days I just have to get into in order to fit in the yoga that I really want, along with a cardio workout or strength training. So, um, yes, but I do. I, I work out almost every morning um, and then I'll augment occasionally at night. So, the, you know, it's not unusual. Yesterday I had 6 a.m. strength training, you know, and then 7 p.m. yoga Something I often think about is careers as sort of two different phases. Maybe they're even more than two, but I've thought about it in two. It's those early years where you do say yes to everything, where you are kind of that firefighter, as you described. And then there's that moment where you have to start learning to say no and prioritizing. If you don't say yes to everything early, the chances of you even getting to that second phase are probably limited. Where was the turning point for you in your career? Um, the turning point became where I just started when I when I crystallized on what my higher purpose and my ultimate mission in my life is. This is what you know when you when you think about you know when your time is up and you're lying there on the deathbed. What do you want to have accomplished in your life? What do you want to have stood for as a human being? What difference do you want to have made in this world? When you get clarity on that, and then you look at how you're spending your time. It's very easy to say, you know what, I shouldn't have said yes to that, to that, to that. Once I got clarity on how I really want my life to look and what I want to do and how I want to make an impact in this world, it became easy. I resigned boards. I started saying no to things that I would have previously said yes to that are nice to do or that I did out of a sense of duty or obligation and really just started to say, if it doesn't lead me to where I'm trying to go, why am I spending energy, precious energy mm-hmm. and time, which we don't have enough of on this? But I will say this, for, along the way, learning how to say no, the decision to say no is one thing. You know, for, for several years in a row, my New Year's resolution was just say no. <laughs> and it, it kept the next year I go, I'm going to make that resolution again to just say no. The challenge was I didn't know how to say no. So I had to learn some skills and put some tools in my toolbox around how do you graciously turn down requests of your time? How do you do it? Well, it depend- it's situational, but, you know, it's I'm sorry 
I am completely at capacity yes. for mentor relationships that I can take on right now. And that's one that was very hard for me to learn because when people ask me to mentor them, I would say yes. And then all of a sudden you can't be You're effective not doing, for exactly. anyone because right. you've taken on too much. So to, to just say, I would love to help you, but right now I'm at capacity with this and I've learned to try to give people tools to help themselves. So yeah. I'll redirect them. Here are a couple, couple books I can recommend. You know, What are your favorite books to recommend on that front? So one of my favorite books is called The Women's Guide to the Language of Success. Okay. Um, and I, I found that years ago as an enormous help because the, the business world was created by men for men. We weren't as women in the business world when it started. You know, we didn't enter the workforce until after World War II um, in factory jobs. We didn't enter the managerial workforce in corporate America until the 80s. The business world was well established by then. The norms of behavior, the language in the business world are based upon male norms of behavior because that's who was there. And women go in and it's like being in France and speaking Italian. We speak a different language. We were socialized differently. And if you, if you want to be heard and you want to be understood, you have to understand the language that's being used. It doesn't mean you have to change who you are. It just means that there are interpretations of your language that will define you if you're not making conscious choices of the way people will, will interpret how you're saying what you're trying to say. Great advice. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? I would say it's really been about learning that putting myself first is okay. I didn't understand that. I put myself last for years. I took care of everybody's needs but my own. So at, you know, six or seven or eight o'clock at night, if someone walked into my office and said, got a few minutes and I was scheduled to go work out, I didn't know how to say no. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to say I have to leave. I would compromise myself, my own needs to help somebody else or to do what somebody else needed. And I finally learned that, you know, it's okay to say, you know what? I'm happy to help you. Let's schedule time tomorrow. I've got to go. Mm -hmm. When did you learn that? What was the tipping point? I actually can't think of an actual like moment, but it was through years of putting myself last. Um, and I, I spoke to somebody one time who was, you know, kind of giving me advice and counseling, you know, over, you know, multiple conversations. And they said they noticed a pattern. They noticed a pattern in me continually putting my needs last behind everyone else's. And did I know that about myself? And it was just like this awareness. And I, and that awareness just led to progressive learning about how to say no or how to say yes, but not now. I bet it was a game change once it like, like, a light switch. It was a total game changer. And, and, and not to feel guilty about it is really important. It's like being on the airplane, right? When they say you have to put your oxygen mask on first so that you can help others. It's the same thing. If you don't get enough sleep, if you're not healthy and maximizing your energy, I can't be my best for my team. I can't be my best for my husband. I can't be my best for the you know charity commitments I make. I can't give my best energy if I don't feel my best. So taking care of myself first is the best thing I can do for everyone who's depending on me. 
What's the worst advice you've received along the way? You know, I took a new job one time and I was trying to understand the culture um, because to me, you know, culture, starting with the culture of an organization and and what the value system is, is is and if that culture is healthy and it's alive and it's aligned, that is the best way to achieve the success of the organization you're after. And so I had started a new job and I was trying to understand what is the culture here? Like what, what are the values, you know, and not necessarily even the written values, but what are the unwritten unspoken values that should be the basis of my decision-making. And I was trying to get that information out of someone that I was working with. And he looked at me and said, culture and values. And he just shook his head and said, it's every man for himself around here. And you better take care of yourself first. And it it wasn't in the way I just described about self-care. It was about kind of dog eat dog, yeah. you know, putting yourself first ahead of others. And it was the worst advice because, first of all, it didn't resonate um, because I'm a firm believer in we are nothing without our people. I am nothing without my team. And so every man for himself just isn't isn't a good leadership approach and it's not. It's not the way I'm hardwired. So I just remember thinking, well, you're not very helpful. <laughs> yeah. And I'm either not going to survive here or I'm going to change it. Right. Well, I was thinking that that would be, to me, a red flag time to leave. But you had just joined the company. Yeah. Were you worried then that, oh, my gosh, like, what have I signed up for? Um. Yeah, I kind of did because I thought if, it, if that's the way the game is played here, I'm, I'm not going to want to play the game that way. And I'm not going to change who I am to be successful. So we'll see how this goes. Is there anything you use to determine when that turning point or when that moment is that you need to go somewhere else? Because everybody, it's it's such a personal thing where one company culture might work for somebody, but for another person, that's not going to be the case. Yeah, I agree. Um, You know, I've been fortunate in that I've been in a position for quite a long time um, to be in a leadership role where I could create the culture, a culture that I believed was healthy and high performing and helped people be their best self and people, you know, increase employee engagement, increase productivity and great financial outcomes as a result. But um, if you are not in a position to create the culture or impact the culture and it doesn't align with your value system, if you're being successful means you have to do things that are out of alignment with your personal value system, then it's time to leave. Great advice. Nikki Leandakis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So it's the end of the interview, which means it is now time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Jennifer Mellon, who caught my eye because of the pro bono work that she's doing to help those who are survivors of domestic violence and missing children. She calls herself a conscious capitalist, and she's the co-founder and president of Trustify. It's a really unique company, and here she is to tell you more. Hi, I'm Jen Mellon, the co-founder and president of Trustify, the first technology platform to connect businesses and consumers to the only nationwide network of licensed and highly vetted private investigators. I founded Trustify in 2015 with my husband and co-founder, Danny Boyce, when we realized no one was looking to disrupt the investigations industry. 
We believe every person and every business has the right to truth, trust, and safety, and we're on a mission to provide that. As a conscious capitalist and a founder of a double bottom line company, we're proud to make a difference in the lives of so many through our work. We've done pro bono work from day one for domestic violence survivors, missing children, trafficked persons, the wrongfully incarcerated, and many more. We work with national and international organizations offering our services for free. We believe that doing good is good business. Congratulations, Jen, for being our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week. Remember, you can head to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis for more of Jen's story, how she built Trustify. And if you or someone you know should be featured here or you have career questions, send me an email at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. I love reading all of your emails. We are getting more and more of them every day, which makes me so happy. So thank you to those who take the time and thank you to those who will take the time. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Also, a huge thanks to those of you who have been leaving reviews. Uh, For example, this one from State of the Burbs, who writes, Seriously great. I love listening to No Limits for so many reasons. Rebecca Jarvis is such a wonderful interviewer. She has this incredible ability to make the guest feel comfortable. It feels like you are listening in a conversation between friends. I am hooked and feel inspired every time I tune in without fail. High fives to Rebecca and team. I preach your magic to all my girlfriends keep doing it. Your work is so appreciated. State of the Burbs, I love that you love listening to No Limits for so many reasons. And I am now giving you that high five right back. (laughs) My team is looking at me funny, but I am doing it. Right, Taylor? (laughs) Thanks, State of the Burbs. And thanks to anyone who takes the time to leave a review. It really does help people find the podcast and we appreciate it. Reminder, when you're sharing anything about the podcast on social media, feel free to use that hashtag No Limits Podcast. And finally, a shout out to the team here that makes this happen week after week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Michelle Boncardo, research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.